Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. The Waco History Podcast is sponsored by Brotherwell Brewery on Historic Bridge Street in Waco. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio uh, Welcome back to the uh, Waco History Podcast. Uh, I've, I've uh, been wanting to do this episode for a while because I think it's a really important issue to understand historically the urban landscape of Waco, uh, particularly as it changes in the second half of the 20th century. And so we're going to talk about urban renewal today, and I'm happy to have uh, Dr. Robert Fairbanks with us, uh, who is a urban historian, uh, recently retired, uh, University of Texas at Austin, uh, and he has written on urban renewal in Texas, and so he is the expert we need to, uh, to understand this a bit. So Bob, I appreciate you being with us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, some people, when I just said it, uh, first heard the term urban renewal. And uh, I know it's something you spent uh, quite a bit of time researching and learning about. And of course, Texas is unique in, in some ways. But if you could start by just describing for uh, a listener what urban renewal was, maybe the forces that animated it, and kind of how it came about. Yes, I can do that. Uh, you have to go back to the progressive era when there's a growing concern in American cities about uh, inadequate housing uh, for urban populations, particularly for the very poor. And out of that, there became a great uh, concern about how to find housing for those people. There are efforts at model uh, housing programs and uh, other, other approaches that would make it easier for poor people to find housing, but none of this worked. Um, there were some, quote, radicals who suggested public housing, but that was not seen as a, a popular idea in this country at that time, although social housing was very popular in Europe um, in, into the 20s, basically. So there'd been a concern about housing because housing, bad housing was seen as uh, a promoter of uh, sickness, uh, creating and also creating social problems that uh, resulted in criminality and also just a loss of kind of identity with the city. Cities were growing at a spectacular rate at this time, and there was just a concern that people were losing their way if they um, sort of lived in these neighborhoods. Uh, in fact, it was more than just housing. It was the neighborhoods that were seen as the problem. Anyways, uh, by the 1930s, there had been a sort of a growing movement um, to deal with this issue, and the Great Depression provided an opportunity that is uh, people were really suffering. Many people were suffering in the cities. And finally, pressure on uh, FDR to do something about it resulted in him pushing a bill in 1937 called the um, Housing Act of 1937. And uh, he, he signed it and we started uh, public housing, which included both slum clearance 
and public housing. That is the idea that people, the private market just simply could not um, provide the necessary housing for the for the lower third of the population in a lot of ways. And so this, this became the first governmental sort of intervention in public housing. Um, World War II kind of slowed that down, but after the war, um, there became a new movement to try to get additional public housing. And uh, the Housing Act of 1930, uh, for the Housing Act of 1949 was passed, which provided significant public housing uh, for people, but it also provided a different kind of course of action too. And this was uh, urban redevelopment. Um, a lot of business people were very upset about the decline in their downtowns uh, as a result of both the depression and the war in which building was limited. And so they wanted more than just housing for people. They wanted um, the government to come in and provide uh, money to buy up land that was blighted and um, also occupied by and sometimes occupied by poor people and build either nicer apartments for them or build other structures that could be used to make the downtown attractive. This, this was a, a policy that got a lot of criticism because it really didn't address public housing as much as it should have. But uh, by 1954, when Eisenhower became president, his re response to all of this was he appointed a committee and the idea was we shouldn't just get rid of slums, but we need to um, prevent housing from becoming slums. And so he uh, was willing to support the Housing Act of 1954, which created urban renewal as we know it today. And, and there were several aspects to urban renewal. Uh, one was the continued, uh, the, the, the attempt to uh, get rid of the very bad slums in cities. But another important part of this was uh, looking and repairing housing that could be saved rather than just blanket knocking it all down. And uh, this, this was viewed as a, a way of, of providing housing for people without destroying their old housing, basically. Hmm. And the rehabilitation sort of emphasis became a strong part of the Housing Act of 50. Uh, for. It also created some other things that hadn't been around before, and that was in order to participate in this program, cities had to agree to follow out the workable program, which was a, a program that um, forced cities to provide and enforce building codes, zoning, um, housing codes. That is, it created a kind of a background. So if you're going to have housing, it has to be good housing now. And this, this was, a, I think, an overlooked part of this whole uh, program, but it, it was important. Another thing that it did was it provided money for people who were displaced from uh, slum clearance to get loans from the uh, loan protection from the FHA, that is, the, uh, their, they had mortgage insurance, and they could borrow money now uh, in long-term you know, not, not your 10-year payment or something like that, but it was a, a long-term uh, repayment. And this provided them more opportunities, not only to, uh, if they are displaced to find housing, but the other problem or the other issue was if they had a house that needed repair, they could get long-term loans. And so this became kind of part of the uh, Housing Act of 54. And it was used, again, it was, sometimes historians just conflate both the, the, six, the 49 Act and the 54 Act, but they really are wrong because it's two different things. So anyway, it's in this setting. Now you notice that I haven't said how this impacts 
Texas because Texas had not passed any enabling legislation to allow this to happen. Um, state of Texas, and there wasn't the only state, but it was one of the one of the states that certainly just refused to pass any enabling legislation to allow uh, cities, for instance, to use eminent domain that is their power to take uh, private property uh, to you know, clear slums. And uh, they don't do that until 1957. And so really our story of urban renewal in Texas really doesn't start until 1957. And that that's just that's politics, just the desire to to not have Washington kind of expansion of federal power or the idea that even local governments could um, kind of take land uh, from private could seize private property for development. Now, of course, private property wasn't seized as such. It was like, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you have land that they're going to build a highway on, you'll get paid for it. You'll, realtors will appraise that property and you'll get paid for it. But it, it is disruptive. And you know the argument is, this is my land, the government yeah. should take it away, although government had been doing that for a long time, but not, sure. not at this level. And of course, what makes it particularly controversial is it, you, you lose your land uh, and you may not be able to find an equivalent place to live, although that's not supposed to be how it happens. Well, and I, I think 57, I also think the Interstate Highway Act, I mean, these things are connected, right? Yeah, they, well, there's a relationship to it, certainly. And uh, uh, he has an Interstate Highway Act, of course, is also concerned with running highways through areas that have traditionally been viewed as slum areas. A, the land is cheaper, and B, if you really believe, and, and in the first half of the 20th century, there really was a strong belief that slums really shaped people. That is, it's not that it was just bad living conditions, but slums altered the way people view the world and it made it harder for them to be good citizens and it made them harder to you know, participate in civic affairs. And, 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 and as a result of that, uh, the idea was slums were really viewed as the problem um, during this time. Now, one of the things you point out in your research that uh, why Texas is often left out of the larger story of urban renewal is it doesn't happen in the places that you might assume it would happen in Texas, right? Exactly. And, and the places where it didn't happen were very vocal. That is, again, when you have the, you know, Houston and Dallas and Fort Worth are three of the largest cities in the state, and they refuse to have anything to do with urban renewal. Well, I should, I should, be, I should be kinder than that. There, there were people in those cities that were very interested, but um, Fort Worth defeated uh, oh, and one of the things that made Texas a little an outlier also was that the enabling legislation in Texas was very different than the enabling legislation in other places. That is, you know, the state has the right to say what can and can't be done. And in Texas, you had to have a popular vote in the city before it could participate. And a number of the big cities, because there was strong opposition to it from wealthy and influential people, it got defeated. Um, another part of enabling legislation was you couldn't build public housing on land that had been cleared through urban renewal, which also created a real problem. Where are these people going to go now? Mm -hmm. and, and so, and that's one of the reasons why rehabilitation of houses was, was fairly important, um, particularly in cities that had large black populations, because you, you know, the fear was you're going to scatter African-Americans throughout the neighborhood if you weren't careful 
uh, and, and that would, of course, scare scare a lot of people because of the race issue. So those were just a couple of things. Another one was that if you lot if you had your land taken away from you, and then they cleared it, you had the right to buy. You had the first right to buy that land back. And and, and so there's it, it was, it's not the usual way that state enabling legislation happened. And so it, it, in some ways it made it tougher for uh, people for some states to participate in urban renewal. And Texas certainly was one of those. I see. So when you said those elements of enabling legislation, those were those elements that were in the Texas state legislation that enabled right. the federal program? Right. For instance, the Texas state legislature had to give um, the cities the power of eminent domain for this slum clearance mm -hmm. that, that hadn't happened before. You know, you've, they've had for a long time the power of eminent domain for highway building and for utilities and things like that, but this was this was different. And so, and we all know that Texas has a reputation of being a very conservative state in some ways. And remember, this is you know post World War II when communism was viewed as a, a real threat. And for some people, they truly believed that this was going to uh, basically sh shatter the basic some of the basic notions of what Americans are supposed to be like and depending on the government at this level is going to be seen as something that's just too dangerous. And so there are a number of people with a number of reasons, but they opposed uh, public housing. And what was interesting is they, they were very outspoken and got enormous amount of publicity, uh, but there have been a couple of examples that in straw polls the population, for instance, of Dallas would have voted for urban renewal, um, but the mayor was afraid of controversy, so he didn't even have hold the election. So, so it, it's a funny story. And it's an, what got me interested in uh, places like Waco was simply that I started nosing around and finding out there were a number of Texas cities that were very interested in urban renewal. and. Uh, disproportionately high number of them were, were places like Waco or smaller, that they saw that this was really a chance for them to secure federal money to do things that really needed needed to be done. And uh, we can talk about that because it, you know, Waco not only was the largest, had, had more urban renewal programs in Texas than any other city, but it was really the first city to undertake and achieve uh, urban renewal in in the state. Even the Lubbock likes to brag that it was the first one. Uh, in its project was not done until after uh, the the Baylor project was done. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so we we had the first one completed was in was in Waco. Gotcha. Uh, so, as you point out in your research, the application was in these mid-sized to smaller cities in Texas which seems very different than the vision behind the original legislation. It seems like it, it was shaped to deal with large urban slums. Is that, is that correct? Or am I, think I, that's, I think that's right. Although I'm never sure. I mean, that was certainly the impetus for this, mm -hmm. but what we've discovered was that smaller towns had large numbers of slums too. That is, yeah. uh, and, and they were problematic and those cities didn't have as many resources to deal with them. Uh, one of the things that I found in my research was, you know, Waco had been certainly thriving during World War II, and it, it, it you know, had military uh, camps around it. It had uh, agriculture was going well then. But what happens is that after 
World War II, things start to kind of go get dicey. Uh, and that has to do with uh, a number of things. Uh, some of it had to do with what Waco experienced, what everybody else did, and that was suburbanization. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, when you start to have shopping malls, that suggests that a lot of people are moving outside. I think Dallas size is, is attracting more people, I think, to Dallas than might have been at Waco. That's that's my theory. It's not, I, I can't convince you of that because I don't have the evidence. But uh, the whole thing was, and the city had not been doing well. The, yeah. the city had been running well, I mean, had been running, but they had the kind of the good old boy a government at this time. And they, they were, they had a national, well, a state reputation of not being very well governed. Yeah. Uh, they used commission form of government, which has its own problems. Because Can you talk a little bit about that, Bob? Because you, yeah. you point that out in your research, just yeah. lay out what, uh, what a commission form would look like. Okay. The, the, the key of the commission form is instead of having uh, a city council that is supposed to be making policy for the entire city, um, the commissioners are assigned one task that is as a commissioner of public safety. Uh, there's a commissioner of finance. And the idea was each one, th- this, was, this was an attempt to make people really accountable. I mean, that was his focal point. And while on paper that looked interesting, what happened was if he was a, commis- if he was a commissioner of public uh, safety, guess where he wanted all the money to go? you know, public safety. And if he was, you know, a, a commissioner of streets and roads, where did he want? And so it didn't work the way it was supposed to in kind of the abstract. And uh, also these were people who were being asked to do a lot of governing, but who were not paying that much, getting paid that much. And uh, it, it had problems. It was very popular in the 1920s, but by the 1930s, the idea is, Let's use a city manager. We'll have a council elected at large, and the city manager then will coordinate everything. Mm-hmm. And he'll be the guy who's, resp- you know, he's, he's the CEO, basically. Yeah. And he'll coordinate things. And, and that's what happened here. That is, I think it was in 55, mm-hmm. around that period, where a, a, a group of, of people said, we have to make this, you know, Waco's not working well. And so there was a, a, a groundswell of effort to try to create this new form of government. And it's when that new form of government is put in that Waco really takes off in terms of trying to do things that um, will help it grow, or at least from its own perspective, help it grow. It's not an accident that after, you know, within a year after uh, the city manager government is uh, put in place, that you have them bring in a Harlan Bartholomew, who's a planner and who has a tremendous impact on this, on the city and, and how the city is shaped. Uh, this is a time when planners were seen as professionals uh, who were, had the abilities and the trainings to really coordinate the needs of the city. And the idea was they're, they're the experts. And so what they say is going to be the model of what should go on. And I, I point that out because of course, planning today is very different than that. Planning now looks for the neighborhoods and more input, but these were the professionals. Yeah. Who, who did this? And Bartholomew, I mean, um, Hank Corwin, who's the, uh, for a long time, the, the, the head of the house, uh, the urban renewal agency said, you know, we just followed Bartholomew. We basically did everything that he said to do. 
and he, you know, he was the one who identified the neighborhoods that needed to be fixed. And he's the one who ultimately said, we have to redo downtown. I mean, it's really kind of interesting to see that. And I, I don't think we give them enough credit for, uh, the, for their, how they shape some cities and small yeah. cities particularly. Well, I think in Waco, that's the playbook they're running for the next two decades is that is that plan that's laid out yep. uh, down to the walking mall, which we've talked a little bit about on the right. podcast before. Yeah. Um, you, you were talking about uh, the idea of a local referendum in Texas to support urban renewal. And it's you make the point that it's overwhelmingly for uh, in Waco as far as the vote to yes. uh, approve it's seven to one vote seven or to something one. Yes. Like that. It's, it's incredible so, yeah so yeah it, it's, talk about why that's incredible yeah well it's an, it's, it's incredible because waco at this time at least had a maybe before the broad and bartholomew but uh waco had a reputation of being a conservative city you know the, with the baptist school here you kind of identified the people at the regional um federal Urban Renewal Center were just shocked when they started getting applications uh, for for this. But if we think about it, it, it makes more sense. You know, first of all, you have businessmen who are concerned about what's going on, particularly you know if you're located in downtown, property taxes are declining, and of course that's critical for city infrastructure and things like that. And then of course you have the Baylor, the Baylor issue, which is Baylor is attracting large numbers of students after the war at GI Bill and all of that. But Baylor has a pretty limited campus. And, there, and of course, what makes that even more tempting to become involved in urban renewal was that those bad housing areas were around the city. Uh, Baylor, I mean, around the campus, Baylor had was located where it was because the land was cheap when it, when it came, basically. Mm -hmm. And it remained kind of less attractive land for a long time. And so what you have is you have Baylor alumni coming out in full force because Baylor understood what was going to happen. Bartholomew in his plan said, you need to allow Baylor room to expand. Mm -hmm. and, and he says, and that shouldn't be a problem since it's, it's surrounded by blighted or slum areas. And so yeah. from that standpoint, the Baylor turn, which is ironic if you think about it, because Baylor doesn't usually isn't an advocate for government intervention and things. And, but, but, Baylor had a plan, the city, you know, the city leaders had a plan too, that they, they saw that this was something that was necessary for the city to, to grow. And I think that's one thing that happens in a lot of smaller cities who have ambitions of being more successful is the leadership says, look, we're not going to have the resources to do a lot of this. And urban renewal is going to provide resources that really help us in, uh, you know, fighting bad housing and then providing more infrastructure one of the things that we forget is cities who made commitments to urban renewal had to pay one third of the cost. Well, actually Baylor, I mean, Waco only had to pay one fourth of the cost because it was smaller than a number of places, but they had to pay 25% of the cost of urban renewal project. Well, how are you going to do that if you're a city? Well, you're going to do that by providing ro paved roads and sewage systems and uh, you know utilities and things that you should have done anyways, but you just didn't have the incentive. And now you have the incentive because you have all this other money coming in. And so, you know that that has a profound impact on uh, particularly neglected areas that had 
needs for these things for years. But now because uh, of, of urban renewal, they were going to get them because you're going to clear the land and make that land more attractive in some cases, at least. Yeah. There's another uh, kind of historical cross current here in the Waco context, and that's the tornado right. uh, of yeah. 1953. So they're still in this period of, I mean, really recovery. I mean, in some ways they hadn't even got to rebuilding yet when, uh, you know, the opportunity for federal money uh, to remake particularly areas that were hit, I mean, hit directly uh, by the tornado that that opportunity comes about. And that's, that's important because Bartholomew, who I, who's, a, who's one of the great planners in planning history, or at least is one of the well-known ones, and, and he did a lot of planning in Texas, is very concerned about downtowns. Uh, I have a quote here somewhere, or I've seen a quote at least, that, that he was you know, saying that in order to be a successful city, you have to have the heart of the city being healthy. And the idea is if we don't fix, fix downtown Waco up, we're not going to be able to grow a city the way we want to. And so he was a very strong proponent of that. I think he encouraged the convention center. And of course, he was influenced by uh, Victor Gruen and some other people who said, you know, the automobile's the problem of downtown. And if people can have access to downtown by parking on the fringes and then walk and then, you know, so get rid of the square and come up with something that's more amenable to to pedestrians and and Bartholomew was the guy who he suggested this early on, and um, it, it just it it's it struck me just by looking at and reviewing some of the things that I looked for the this article, the the important role that Bartholomew had in all this. Well, I shouldn't blame Bartholomew. He had a it's Bartholomew and Associates, the people he had trained, but mm -hmm. and they were all over Texas doing things. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, for people that are listening, I think it's useful, particularly if you're on Baylor campus, to think of kind of Mars McLean Gymnasium on campus as kind of the the end of where campus was at the time. And so now if you think about, you know, what becomes Baylor's frontier as being a fairly densely developed developed neighborhood down to the river, it's really remarkable because because you don't see you don't see any markers on the landscape now to indicate that there were neighborhoods there. Right. That, no, that, that, is, that is right. And those were neighborhoods. Some of those neighborhoods, some of the housing in the first project were, they would pass housing codes. They, they, they were in pretty good shape. Now, a lot of them weren't, and, and that's the problem. When you identify an area for redevelopment, you will call it a slum area, even though there's some healthy housing. And so there are some very upset people who lost you know, their homes, basically, through this. I mean, they, if they had, you know, they were going to be paid for them if they were homeowners. If they were renters, they weren't going to get paid for it, although they would be given relocation efforts. But... Um, Leaders of the black community were very upset in that might have been more in Riverside, but they were very upset about what was going on because uh, the president of the black college and yeah, Paul Quinn, Paul Quinn, you know, was very vocal about, uh, you know, this was done without any consultation of of African-American leadership or African-Americans. This was just, again, done from Bartholomew's office, basically. And, and, and you know, he was very critical of that. Uh, others suggested that, you know, these were just efforts to 
uh, make sure that African-Americans, well, it, there are a couple of things that are going on here. There's one when the Jefferson project was being done, which, which was a, in a very kind of rough area anyways, and, and had lots of really bad housing. But the idea was, I guess, with, with the new high school or that was being built, they were saying this was an attempt, you know, they were doing this, but they were going to keep African-Americans out of the school now. And, and there are all sorts of accusations. So not everybody was happy with this and yeah. there are good reasons. Uh, I know that there's been some document, a documentary, I think about what Sandtown. Yeah. With which, yeah. So Sandtown and Calle Dos, which were both kind of along the river, um, kind of near downtown, both those areas are, are cleared out. Yeah. Right. And, and, and folks may assume this, but, we haven't said directly this is going to hit the minority communities really hard. I mean, these are these are vast uh, majority minority communities that are hit with urban renewal. More, more than seventy percent were relocated, and lost mm -hmm. lost their houses. Yes, which is you know one of the bad. I mean, I've always tried to look at urban renewal a little differently. It's very popular now to just be attacking urban renewal. Sure. Uh, for good reasons. I mean, it had dislocated large numbers of people. But one of the things we do forget is that a lot of these people really were living in horrible, you know, shotgun houses without access. To, you know, without I forget the number that Bartholomew claimed that, that had no toilets, but it was just a spectacular number. And uh, I mean, indoor toilets, indoor plumbing, these things mm -hmm. were, I mean, they really were in bad shape. But of course, the question is, what do they end up doing? Because one of the things that made Texas unique in, is that you couldn't build public housing on cleared urban renewal land if yeah. you wanted to do that. And so it, it became a problem. Do, do we know uh, how much of the land, and this is a big question, but do we know how much of the land was uh, like tenant tenants were living in those properties or how many of them were homeowners? I, because I, I've thought about that as I've thought about these projects. It's, it's much easier... Uh, I mean, sometimes in discussions of urban renewal, they're, they're, you feel like they're blaming the residents for the conditions in those neighborhoods. But we could also, you know, you know, the city has some blame. In some cases, landlords have some blame in some of the conditions these folks are living in. Yeah, I mean, the, these people were facing racism. They were face, facing um you know, limited job opportunities, and many of them really had no choice but live in a, in a dwelling that was really cheap, and there were reasons it was really cheap. There were a lot of uh, slumlords around here. In fact, mm -hmm. the only organized opposition to uh, urban renewal was from a group of slum landlords who were making a lot of money out of this. And so that, you know, that was an issue, I think. Even some of the housing that was owned you know, African-Americans knew they had limitations of where they could build. If you, you build near the river because the river flooded and that land, you look at any city in America, you can usually identify where poor African-Americans lived, you know, early. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and so you, or you lived on the outskirts of the port, you know, the land that Baylor had. Uh, and, you know, one of the, one of the urban renewal projects, I think there were 75 or 80% of the I think I was in Dewey, maybe, but the black population, you know, lived lived in that. They made up mm -hmm. the, that high percentage. So it, 
I think the people who tried to build their own houses should be applauded because they had very few limited resources. But when you don't have much money and you build a house, you're not going to be able to put in utilities. You're not going to have an indoor plumbing system and things like that. Mm-hmm. And that, that of course, did become, uh, I think, a real problem. These places were also because African-Americans and to a smaller level, uh, Mexican-Americans, but uh, you know, there were only so many options where you could live mm-hmm. too. And, and as a result of that, these places really are pretty congested. Uh, and it's not like you're out in an open area where you, you know, maybe don't need need indoor plumbing and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the first two projects uh, are Baylor um, projects, and so can you situate those for us, kind of where they were for folks that are listening? Well, let's see. I can. <laughs> I may may have to cheat here and look at my notes a little bit, but. The original goal was the original goal that Corwin had when he laid out the first plan was to deal with five projects. And um, I'm trying to think if if, Jeff, if Jefferson was in one of the first ones or not. But you know, the, the Riverside was one of them. And then they had Riverside was they couldn't afford to do everything in Riverside that they wanted to. And so that was they, they dealt with that later on. Um, let me, I, you also said something about, um, uh, the, the, uh, Waco foundation coming in and purchasing the land. Is that how the procedure would work? Well, in, in many cases it would. And that was, that was something that makes Waco look very good on paper because one of the problems of slum clearance in general is it's one thing to clear a slum. And it's another to be able to get rid of that cleared land. Because usually if you clear a slum, it's near another slum and people don't want to invest. But with, with, the, with the Baylor Waker, Waco Foundation, um, this is a group of people who understood that Baylor needed more land and they raised an enormous amount of land. And so when the government came in and cleared the land, government, you know, and Baylor won, the government had someone ready to buy it immediately which is very rare. Yeah. Urban, I mean, I lived in a city that there was an area that was cleared that had been cleared for 20 years and they never found somebody on it. And, and basically the foundation, uh, I know the first two were paid for by the foundation and there's at least, at least two more because a lot of this stuff ringed the city mm-hmm. uh, and I mean, ringed the, the university. And so as a result of that, uh, the foundation played a critical, a critical role in, in this. In fact, it couldn't have been done without the university. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, just the numbers that are pouring in at this time, and they just, they simply did not have the land available. Yeah. Yeah. You, you point out in your article, the first two projects give 163 acres to Baylor, which tripled the size of campus. Yep. Uh, and uh, then in a later project gives them another 51 acres. So I'm glad you read that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're picking up a lot of land right. and you mentioned earlier about how values are set. How, how are they setting values on land? Well, they have appraisers go around um, and 
would the federal government hire local appraisers or these are federal appraisers that are coming in and establishing no, these are local appraisers usually okay. you know, I, again that's a that's a good question but traditionally the uh in fact that is a good question for a place like waco because i don't know how many appraisers they would have access to but mm -hmm. the the uh urban renewal agency is responsible for that that's okay. one of their jobs okay and uh they will appraise the land um and then the the land is often there's there there's a bidding for the land basically and you know a lot of times land doesn't get bid on yeah very much at all but uh you know they appraise the land their primary appraisal is to get the money to the owner of the land yeah and and then they go from there i see i would imagine in in with the baylor projects there were where there weren't any other bidders that's exactly right for the land yeah that's exactly right and yeah. which, which which again made it a great deal for baylor because mm -hmm. that's land you're going to have to buy almost all of that land to even have a hope of doing something that was going to be successful. Mm -hmm. So, it, yeah. Yeah, you point out uh, there are going to be nine projects in Waco, which seems an inordinately high number of. It's incredible, and in fact, I was reading something, and they when they decided to call uh, include models of the Model Cities project there, they were claiming there were ten, but technically, Model Cities is different. That you know, urban renewal is over by the time Model City appears. But but it is, it's an amazing number for a, a, a town that size, basically. And uh, it, it says something about the leadership of of Waco at this time. Uh, you can be critical of maybe the priorities of, you know, you can be critical of downtown because it didn't make it the way it was supposed to. But at the time, there was just this enormous amount of excitement. And I remember, the person who replaced Corwin ultimately bragged and said, this is the best urban renewal program in the country. Mm. You know, we have it right here. And in some ways, yeah. in terms of time, timing, it, it would probably be in one of the top ones. I mean, you have bigger ones, clearly. Uh, you know, the, the hemisphere, of course, was built with urban renewal money and things like that. But, and Austin did some strange things with their money moving completely moving black neighborhoods yeah. uh, away. But but having said that, Waco was incredible for the size of the city to do what it did. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I would assume they continued to pursue the program is particularly the downtown area just can't get traction during this period. Um, you know, it, uh, the, the long recovery. Uh, when, when I talk about... Uh, downtown Waco and what downtown Waco looks like. They always talk about the tornado and I bring up urban renewal to talk about what kind of reshapes that landscape, but they just struggle with getting traction because they are dealing with suburbanization and, right. and, and, and you, as you mentioned, general tire closes and Conley air force base closes and they're, they're losing uh, their tax base uh, in a lot of respects. No serious loss of tax base, and and there's there's a race issue in this too. The yeah. downtown is seems to be catering more to African Americans, or at least there are more African Americans in the area. Um, but because there's some, I've read some racist <laughs> comments by people who, yeah. who just weren't happy with what was happening to that. But but ultimately, you know, that was going to ha happen just because of the automobile and the 
you know, the suburbs. I mean, they were very concerned about parking, but even when they got rid of the automobiles, you parked far enough away that it was going to be a little, little walk, it seems to me, to get to the, you know, every, all the parking was behind the buildings. It seemed to me. Well, I've, I've talked to um, someone with urban planning at the city of Waco in recent years uh, about downtown development, and he said it will never truly be there when, until traffic gets worse. It's too easy to get in. It's still too easy to get in from Woodway and Hewitt and China Spring and Robinson to downtown Waco. Oh. We've got to make traffic worse. <laughs> That's what's going to solve the problem in that people are going to want to live. In other words, downtown Waco is still too accessible, he said. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting not, take on it. Yeah, yeah, that is an interesting take, I think, yeah. because, of course, historically, the automobile was the bad. That was the evil. That's right. And, that's right. And too much traffic and stuff like that. Yeah. But I would think the campus would have some impact on that, too. But uh, Yeah, it does. And there's a whole other concurrent story we're not necessarily getting into here of the way in which uh, the interstate is going to kind of change. Uh, the landscape here as well. Right. Uh, I would suspect just because it goes through an area that's connected to this story, uh, there is some relationship there. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And no one's looked into that. That should be somebody who wants to do a PhD thesis that Baylor should look into that more. So, <laughs> well, When you think about kind of the importance of urban renewal uh, as the way it plays out for cities of this size in Texas, I mean, what are your thoughts as an urban historian as far as the place of that, if we think about kind of overall urban development in Texas? I think it, it did play a role in helping small cities and towns um, become more modern in terms of infrastructure and things like that, that it, it doesn't get enough credit for. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of a going against the tide in, in some ways. A lot of the literature is completely critical of urban renewal these days, and for good reason. I mean, there are reasons to be critical, but I think there are a lot of positive things that were being done. Um, I, I think it was in Dewey that there, that there was a fairly significant rehabilitation. There are a lot of the houses were rehabbed there, mm -hmm. and they were relatively you know, I mean, that worked, I think, pretty well. And otherwise, that area probably would have deteriorated more mm -hmm. and not been as successful. Um, but, I mean, I think the, the kicker that I have seen about this is that there are things that are associated with um, urban renewal that had a, a positive impact on cities. Uh, to get urban renewal money, you had to have what was called a workable program, which means you had to have city codes, which are very important if you're trying to prevent housing from getting really bad. You know, housing codes um, told you what kind of, you know, what you could or couldn't do in the house. You, you know, you can't have, uh, you have to have in, indoor uh, utilities and things like that. And I think that that becomes an important plus of urban renewal that is, you know, the, the, the whole goal of urban renewal was originally to sort of save housing and to provide healthier neighborhoods. And while that didn't necessarily work, because we've already talked about the numbers of people who were dislocated, it, it, it still did 
it improved housing. I was amazed at how few housing codes were in existence before the workable program started. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's not building codes, but housing codes, you know, telling you, you know, how much space you have to have for each individual who lives in the, in the dwelling and stuff like that. So I think that stuff, and that stuff helped modernize some of the places that um, were small and weren't, just weren't going to have the money to do it, I think. But yeah. if you can get a bunch of money to do, you know, clear something and sell that land, then you might be able to afford this other stuff, which would have, I mean, minorities get hurt a lot, but we, it's known fact that minority neighborhoods are neglected because of infrastructure needs and they, they just don't have the political voice to get the things that they need half the time. Mm -hmm. Or they don't even have the money to bring in infrastructure, which often is done by cities when they are doing urban renewal. And so I think that, you know, there's some positive thing about smaller Texas cities that needs more attention. I have a colleague who is doing more work on that right now. Mm -hmm. We're going to see how that, well, after his work, we'll see what he has found. About well, you, you mentioned that, uh, just what the, the state of the infrastructure was, dirt roads, you know, substandard, you know, sewage network, just, just the things that were in place before. Right. Uh, you, you talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And, and parks and things like that, that you, you know, playgrounds for kids that you might not have had before. Yeah. Uh, you know, and of course, schools play a major role in this too. So there's cities, cities won't, don't get schools funded by urban renewal. But again, if you've been needing a school for a long time, building a school is a pretty good way of taking care of your one, one fourth uh, price tag that you have to provide for urban renewal. And so what I'm saying is what urban renewal did is it forced people, cities to do things that they might not have, they would have, they had been putting it off for years and now they had an opportunity to really benefit from it. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it seems to me that, that that was particularly important for smaller, smaller cities. Yeah. Well, it, it all depends on uh, your perspective, right? So, I mean, we'll, I'm hoping to talk to some folks as well that had a lived experience of urban renewal. And, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, they'll have a different perspective on it as well, I would expect, on what their story was. Yeah. Well, they're, and they're different stories, too. I mean, mm -hmm. again, I'm not doing this for brownie points, but I, I spent a lot of time uh, looking at the oral histories that you have. In, you know, in the Oral History Institute at, at Baylor, and they they interviewed a number of people. You know, one, one one black man said, "Well, I hate this, but I have no choice. You know, I'm just being run out of my house." And and they, you know, there are people who are very bitter about this, and um, their voices need to be heard because it, it, you know, I mean, there's a reason people get upset about eminent domain, and I understand that. But mm -hmm. um, it is, yeah, I, I would, I was hoping. If you had other people who were involved in this, in terms of the the, the dark side of what was going on, and yeah, an interesting uh, thing. Because, and I'm very aware of that, uh, and I'm also very aware that uh, you know the things that I relied on, ex ex even the oral histories. You know, I think Corwin was really a very, very good manager of urban renewal, mm -hmm. but he also, he, you know, because he was interviewed years afterwards. You know, he 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 emphasized that he had the strong commitment, and, and I have no reason to really doubt him. But you just wonder 
you know, he's aware of history and he's aware of, but he has a strong commitment to improving housing for African-Americans. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure, you know, and some of the quotes that you read in the newspapers by people are saying, you know, my, my life has been so much better since I've lived in rehab housing and stuff like that. And, or that I've been relocated. I, I think in my, that article, I talked about this one man who, had either dementia or had some mental problems who seemed to be healed when he was put into a new <laughs> house. And it was just, it was kind of almost scary. Yeah, you, you, you get that sense of some of the things you included that they're managing the public face of this yeah. the, to, to, to talk about how great a program it is. So, And, and the Baylor yeah. newspaper used to come up with some pretty positive spins on stuff too. Now they did actually do, they did interview a couple of people who had been displaced, but there are a couple of their articles that were very, you know, positive. And I think, okay, well, I can yeah. understand why. You know? Yeah. But, but it's, it's always that issue of evidence, you know, finding evidence as a historian and uh, sort of evaluating what it well, really means. I, I can tell why you found it a, a fascinating topic to research and write about because it, it is very complex, but as you, as you, you know, very complex, not understood. And, uh, but you know very influential i mean very very important yeah no i mean there are a lot of places that just you know i had spent my i mean most of my life has been dealing with either you know low-cost housing issues or urban renewal and i had seen urban renewal in a lot of cities and i never thought to look at a small city until you know when i was in texas i didn't have something to do and i thought well let's let's go down to baylor because baylor has such a strong urban renewal archives and then you have the oral history and those two things were just you know as a historian you just get excited because there's so much stuff there and uh and i'm not paying you to say this no 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 believe me i mean (laughs) i was more than willing to come on because of this you know this is what i have to depend on are places like baylor that have good archives and stuff and 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 the oral history program i think there is really very good so yeah well thank you bob well, I want to ask uh, broadly, uh, I'm going to broaden it out to Texas a little bit because there's other cases that you looked at. Uh, I think the the other two principal cases that you looked at closely were Grand Prairie and Lubbock. And so are there, if we bring that back into the story, what, what does that add into kind of our understanding of urban renewal in Texas? Look. That's that's an interesting question. Well, Lubbock, of course, has has a university there, and I mm-hmm. think that some of the area around there was improved, not not the same sensational way that it was with Baylor, I think. Um, but I think part of the things behind that was Lubbock officials also wanted to be a bigger player than they, you know, they there was an ambitious mm-hmm. city, I think, and they understood that they had large numbers. I mean, if you want to get cynical, they had large numbers of African-Americans outside city limits who lived in horrible housing conditions. And so they finally realized that this was going to not be safe for the city just because of the disease and the problems. And so they had they, they annexed that area and started to deal with it, but they also annexed the area so that they would make an area more attractive to African-Americans than otherwise, I think. And they were, mm-hmm. they were afraid of African-Americans moving into white areas and, and I, that may be that's a simple i mean i got that sense but i don't have enough evidence to i mean i can't give you 
five documents that that say that. I give you two, maybe, but, well, but it, it's hard to imagine a program like this happening in a place like Texas in the '60s and not having a heavy racial, yeah, yes, component to it. Of yeah. course, yeah. Although the 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 city that surprised me the most, uh, you know, Grand Prairie is more like it was a boom town during World War II, mm -hmm. and it's the one that I've enjoyed kind of examining the most because it actually improved African American housing. I mean, it really did. It built additional African-American housing. It, it created a more stable community and it's you know, still there today. And it's still middle-class African-Americans still live in that area. Mm -hmm. And that, that couldn't have been done without urban renewal. Mm. Uh, and that, that's a story I always use when everybody says that you know, it, urban renewal was a failure because it actually improved things. But um, that's a different story, though. So yeah, it, yeah. I'll, I'll well, try that with Grand Prairie sometimes. So, <laughs> their podcast. <laughs> well, it just it, it just reminds us that there's not one story uh, of this. It, it's much more complicated than that. So it is complicated, but you know there there are outlines of similar mm -hmm. stories. I mean, easily, Waco follows kind of the traditional format of what what urban renewal is seen as being, you know, in terms of uh, dislocation, fail downtown revival, but at the same time, it does provide positive things too. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it, it does provide some rehab housing. It does provide certainly lots of opportunity for Baylor uh, to develop. And it, it, I still have not been able to follow this down, follow this, follow this. I don't think it was in the article I wrote, but uh, in some of the relocation housing, supposedly African-Americans were moved into a white neighborhood. Hmm. And I've never heard that any place else. And this might've been a mixed, you know, a very mixed neighborhood already. Mm -hmm. but, but I thought, well, if that's the case, I mean, that's a, something that I want to look at more. But it was in one of the interviews that you had, so it had to be right, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> it was the least true for them. Yeah, there you yeah. go. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Well, I I really want to uh, thank you again for for joining me and kind of unpacking this for us. Any kind of last thoughts that you want to make sure you get in about the Waco case? No, except I think Waco does remind. I mean. I was really touched by Corwin, who was a real, you know, he was a real estate guy. He wasn't mm -hmm. a government official and he gets appointed, you know, after um, Bartholomew does his first master plan, he talks about the bad housing and he's told, okay, your job is to go and really look at that bad housing and see how bad it is. And he comes back, it seems to me kind of, he does come back a changed man and really is concerned about what he's seen. And I, I, th I guess what I'm saying is a lot of time in the urban renewal story, you know, a lot of the story is, oh, businessmen hijack things and they all go awry. But, but in fact, there are a lot of people who were urban reformers, who were housing reformers, who really thought that this could solve some of the problems of the city. And, and those people are now kind of written out of the literature. Yeah, yeah uh, and, I've done, I did interviews with a uh, attorney that was on the commission and he talks about going into areas of town that he had never been in before and just being shocked yeah. by conditions of things two blocks over from places he was familiar with. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, we forget that there was a reason 
for slum clearance, and particularly, I always find it interesting that the, the, the initial literature on urban renewal kind of celebrated it. But that was in kind of this mindset that the community, you know, the larger whole was important. That is the city need, you know, the health of the city was, was an important thing. And now we live in a world of individualism in which, and, and legitimate, I mean, for African-Americans, their rights have been trounced on, but yeah. the, you know, the Barth Bartholomew planners were concerned about the complexity of the city and wanted to try to deal with all of it. And, and that mindset isn't with us in the 21st century now. It's, it's more about individual rights and, and things like that. And so it's affected the literature, I think, significantly, mm -hmm. uh, which I find kind of telling about the world we live in now. Yeah. But, well, I, I think it's best when we kind of look at all aspects of it. And uh, I think you've helped us with that uh, today. So I really appreciate it. Very good. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've enjoyed this. So it, it's, well, it's been good to talk about it. I, I, I will maybe do a follow-up when you're downtown. Uh, when I mean, we can come to town. Yeah. We can come to Waco some sometime. We don't have to do this remotely. But I really appreciate you joining me today. Okay. Very good. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Ride hard. That'll make it by dawn. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.